Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I've decided to do a new podcast. This one will be called Brown People, a podcast where I speak to politicians, pundits, mothers and thinkers about discovering the stories of people of colour. I'll be your host as we dive into the lives of thoughtful individuals who have maybe courted controversy but have definitely lived a life worth talking about. We'll be talking about the struggles, the triumphs and everything in between as we hear the experiences of people from all over the globe. We'll be getting to the root of what drives them, how they see the world and how the world sees them and how they've overcome the obstacles that life has thrown in their way. This is a podcast that will be an exploration and a conversation. So join us as we shine a light on the stories, struggles, and we look at the lives of people of colour. Please subscribe to it today, whether you're a brown person or not. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hi, hello and welcome. I'm Roy Paul Brown and today I'm in Canada. It's my son's graduation in two days time. So I'm actually sat just outside of Toronto. Today we have Tom Hartman, an American author, radio host, progressive political commentator. Hartman has written numerous books on a variety of topics, including American politics, economics and the environment, which is somewhat apt considering that we have wildfires in Canada, in Quebec, as I speak. He's best known for his radio show, The Tom Hartman Programme, which airs nationally in the United States. The show focuses on political and social issues from a progressive perspective. Hartman has also appeared on various television programmes, including The Daily Show with John Stewart, Real Time with Bill Maher. You've seen him on your TV screens. Throughout his career, Hartman has been a vocal advocate for progressive causes such as income, equality, health care, reform and environmental sustainability. He's known for his articulate and passionate style of commentary and he often engages with listeners and viewers in lively discussions. Tom has written a new book, The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living. Tom Hartman, how are you today, sir? I'm great. Thanks so much for inviting me. 
you know what? Somebody so eminent as you says that they'd want to be on the show. My goodness, we're going to roll out the red carpets. You've written a lot of books about America, American democracy, American society. Why the new book? I wanted to wrap together all the other books that I've written about the various dimensions of American politics the problem with monopolies, the problem with the corruption of the Supreme Court and its corruption of our laws, the, the problem of oligarchy rising in the United States, and our broken healthcare system, the crisis we have with guns. These were all topics of the Hidden History books. I just wanted to have kind of an umbrella, like, how did this all come to be? I, I think most people, after 240 years, take it for granted that democracy is a normal thing and that a functional or even a dysfunctional government is all normal stuff. But this was an extraordinarily radical experiment 240 years ago. And that doesn't get enough coverage, number one. And number two, it was an experiment that was inspired by a way of life that literally hundreds of thousands of years of trial and error developed as being the most functional way for humans to live, to coexist with each other. And in the tribal space, back in the day. And, and that was adapted to a nation state for really the first time. You could say the Greeks experimented with democracy. It was short-lived and it wasn't representative democracy. And then the Roman Republic was only remotely democratic. So this was a really genuine attempt to do something new. And it was heavily based on the experience that the founders had with Native Americans. I want to come to that after we just play a clip my understanding of American democracy always seems to negate, forget the native peoples. But this is a clip from one of your shows of last year. Back in 1889, there was a Native American by the name of Voca. He had a vision. He said if all the tribes of North America began participating in the ghost dance, which was an ancient ceremony, it would lead to the revival of Native American communities and the white man leaving the Native Americans alone. The next year, Chief Spotted Elk, also known as Bigfoot, led a band of 350 Minikonju Sioux to perform a ghost dance. But we had said, you can't do that. And the U.S. troops had surrounded them. And General Nelson Miles and Major Samuel Whiteside of the 7th Cavalry decided to stop the ghost dance. So they intercepted these guys on the 28th of December. From a hill above, a Hotchkiss machine gun raked the teepees. Gunsmoke filled the air, and men, women, and children ran for a ravine near the camp, only to be cut down in crossfire. More than 200 Lakota lay dead or dying. The Wounded Knee Massacre represented the end of Indian resistance and the conquest of the West. For the Indians, it represented the utter disregard of the U.S. toward its treaty responsibilities, and it represented the duplicity and cruelty of the U.S. toward Native people. Yeah, that was really cool. Did you add the music? I did. <laughs> Nice job. Thank you. The book's full title is The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living. And that was very poignantly the end of resistance to white America by native peoples. Are you saying that there is any kind of tangible link between this kind of more egalitarian and tribal way of decision making, which the native peoples of 
the uh, your United States had before it was in the United States, or is the premise of the book saying that we need to look back at native peoples for a system of governance as a way forward for America out of its political morass? All of the above. The story that I found absolutely fascinating when I was researching for the book, there were multiple people from principally from the the Huron tribe and and from the Iroquois Confederacy, the Hurons like because they spoke French. And to, to Paris, where this there was this thing called salons that were a big deal in the in the late sixteen hundreds, early seventeen hundreds. Mostly wealthy women would invite a famous person to come and speak. Ben Franklin used to do these all the time. In particular, there were several Native Americans who showed up for these things and challenged European notions of governance, of challenged hierarchy, challenged patriarchy, challenged the idea of kings and kingdoms and queens and whatnot. And out of that came a forehead slap for people like Dennis Diderot, and before that had been Hobbes and Locke, who both read these stories of these Native Americans. Jean-Jacques Rousseau is probably the most outspoken, his notion of the noble savage uh, that endures to this day. And those people then, looking at Native Americans, said, we can apply these principles. All of the core principles that became the American Constitution, that became the American Revolution, that became the American experiment, came here via Europe from Native Americans. Not all of them via Europe. There were many of the founders who were deeply enmeshed in Native tribes, the principal ones being Franklin and Jefferson. And like I said, this trial and error, 100,000 year long or tens of thousands of years, certainly on this continent, long trial and error efforts to figure out how to live together. And there were a wide variety of different kinds of native governance experiments going on in the 1600s at first contact. Peter Farb wrote a book called Man's Rise to Civilization, which documents 34 different tribes at first contact. And there were some tribes that were run as absolute autocracies, the Mayans and the Incas. They were kind of like the pharaohs. And there were tribes that held slaves. That was mostly in the Pacific Northwest. But most tribes had figured out an egalitarian way of living where most of the decision-making was made by women. These were societies that did not have prisons, did not have police, and yet they had good lives. They had decent lifespan. They had good nutrition. Things worked for them. And then the founders thought, let's do that. Let's try something like that. Tom, let me try and play a devil's advocate here. Let me try and be the host that tries to push back just a little bit. Can't we look at the whole of human history and the rise of civilization first through agriculture and basically see similar patterns of governance? Isn't it a case of when we have subsistence economy and hunter-gatherers that, yes, things are somewhat much more egalitarian? So what is so marked about native cultures in that regard? It's a great question. There were examples in Europe of egalitarian tribal living, and probably the most articulate chronicler of them was a guy by the name of Paul de Rapin de Terras, who wrote a book called The History of England. And Jefferson cited it as one of the three most important books he'd ever read in his life. And Terras was largely discounted by the British historians of the 18th century, of the 1700s for daring to suggest that before the Roman conquest, this red-haired tribe that had in inhabited the British Isles 
that they had been able to put together an egalitarian lifestyle, that they were living in a way that, that Jefferson was seeing the Hurons and the Algonquins and the, the Iroquois Confederacy were living that way too. And it wasn't entirely Native Americans, but the history of civilization, and Dan Quinn goes to this at some length in his Ishmael books, the history of civilization post-agricultural revolution tends to be who locked up the food. It tends to be based on somebody figured out how to lock up the food. And then once they locked up the food, they had the control of life or death over others. And they were able to leverage that into great power and great wealth. There were some democratic experiments in the 1400s and 1500s, and some even earlier than that in the 11 and 1200s in the low counties. But the, the point is that this way of this egalitarian way of living, which I think is at the core of the progressive worldview, is not unique to any one group. You find African tribes, by the way, who are great examples of this. And some of those examples were making their way to Europe also in the 1700s as various European countries were colonizing different parts of the world. Although it was the Native Americans who got most of the press, as it were. But what you find is that this is wired into us. The democracy is wired into us. And in fact, you find it's wired into all animal societies. Conrad and Roper did an amazing study out of the University of Essex back about 10 years ago, where they had heard of red deer on the university campus on some land that the university owned. The title of their paper was Decision-Making in, in Animals. And they were trying to figure out how does a herd of deer figure out when is the time to go leave the grazing area and go to the waterhole? Because there's a bunch of variables there. If you've got weak or old or, or frail members of the society, they may need the water sooner. But if you go too soon, then you you don't have enough food. You haven't grazed enough. How does that change the dynamic of decision-making? And what they found was that, let's say that typically around one o'clock in the afternoon, the deer would go to the water hole. And what they found is that more or less around that time, various deer would start aligning their bodies, pointing their, their heads at one of those three water holes. And when 51% of the deer had started pointing themselves toward one of the particular watering holes, within moments of that, the entire herd started moving to that water hole. So in other words, they were voting by the position of their bodies. When they put a predator near the water holes, what they found was it took two-thirds of the red deer pointing at a water hole before the entire herd would move. And we've built that into our constitution. We It takes supermajority to do things like amending the Constitution, for example, to do big things. And you find that in all kinds of human societies, too. Well, democracy is wired into us, but we have a complex society. We are individuals. We are family members. We're community members. Communities make up society. Society makes up a nation. Why do you then believe that America needs to rediscover democracy because if I'm here if I hear anything being a Brit that spends half his time living in the United States is fundamentally that you guys are the bastions of democracy you practically invented the thing the whole world looks at it, American democracy as the exemplar of democracy that is not true by the way but you got tell yourself that all the time what is there to rediscover this is hardwired into us and you're an American goddammit you guys invented the thing <laughs> I get it. Another great question. Bottom line is that there has always been this dynamic tension between a small group of what psychologists would call sociopaths and the larger group of society and the needs of society. 
And the small group of sociopaths have always tried to figure out ways to dominate society, to rule society, to be the richest, to be the most powerful, to be the leader, to be the king. And what Native American tribes came up with, and African tribes, the tribes from all around the world, frankly, came up with. So there's this constant dynamic tension between the people who just want to live and live decently and conduct their lives normally and have care for their families and whatnot, and uh, this handful of sociopaths. Most studies suggest that the true psychopaths and sociopaths are probably fewer than three or four percent of us, and the authoritarians, the people who are enthusiastic about following psychopaths, are around 20% of us. That group is constantly trying to take over society, trying to take over the world, trying to take over all the wealth. Whoever dies with the most toys wins, is one of their slogans, versus the needs of the larger society, of the whole society. That's the point that I'm trying to make here. When you say rediscover, it's rediscover the, the primary memes, the essential the notions upon which our constitution, and frankly, our form of government was at least intended to be built. This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. I record these on Clubhouse, the social audio app, because it allows me to crowdsource brains that are, quite honestly, bigger than mine. If you're listening to this at home, and there's a good few thousand of you listening to this podcast, whenever I decide to put one out, why don't you sign up to Clubhouse tomorrow? You can be in the audience for a live recording of this. It means you can run up on stage hold your hand up digitally and ask a question. Today we're speaking to author, pundit, radio star, YouTuber Tom Hartman about his new book, The Hidden History of American Democracy. You touched on sociopaths, and I'm going to kind of conflate that with oligarchs, if that's all right now. This is something which you rail about quite often on your show. What lessons, Tom, can be learned from historical struggles with the man, the common person, against oligarchy, specifically in America, such as the fight, let's say, with the British aristocracy or the Civil War against the Confederate South. How can true democracy overcome those who have an outsized influence over the direction of the state? That's always the challenge, and it's the challenge that we're facing right now. To put it in a historical context, 1773, the British East India Company controlled all the trade in North America. The Tea Act was basically a giant tax cut for the East India Company, allowing them to subsidize their tea sales in the United States because they were encountering some stiff competition from tea smugglers. And the American colonists did not want to have all of their tea be supplied by one company and at what they knew would eventually be much higher prices. And so they rebelled. That was the Boston Tea Party. They threw the tea in the harbor. And that is what initially provoked the American Revolution. And that was the point at which uh, people like Jefferson went from being supporters. In fact, he had published a tract in 1773, a summary view of the rights of British Americans about how to be a good British citizen. But after the Boston Tea Party, his and most everybody else's minds were changed. Then in the Civil War, leading up to the Civil War in 1820s, the cotton gin was popularized. It was a very expensive piece of equipment. But it could do the work cleaning cotton of 50 enslaved people, one one cotton gin and a horse to drive it. And only the largest plantations could afford these things. And so over the course of the period of time from the basically 1815 to 1840 or 1850, this oligarchy arose in the South where a handful of families, fewer than a thousand families, ended up owning virtually all the wealth of the South and completely controlling the political system. 
They totally discarded democracy. They turned the South into a fascist state, a brutal fascist state. And, and then they looked to the North and said, you guys are challenging our, our way of life with your democracy BS. And uh, so we're going to take you down too. And that was the second time that America confronted oligarchy or the sociopaths, as it were, the oligarchs. And we beat them. It was the second bloodiest war in our history, but we beat them. And then in the 1790s, or in the 1890s, excuse me, we had the Industrial Revolution with the development of oil and steel and things like that in the period post-Civil War in particular, and all the inventions that Edison was coming up with and whatnot. And we, again, had an oligarchy emerge. It was an industrial oligarchy. It was the John Rockefellers and the Andrew Carnegies and the J.P. Morgans and, and the, the DuPonts, the chemical company. And they acquired so much economic power that they became a political force. They came to dominate America politically. So Congress in 1890 passed the Sherman Antitrust Act, which said that corporations can't get so large that they dominate marketplaces. It wasn't really enforced until 1902 when Teddy Roosevelt and he and William Howard Taft, who followed him, two progressive Republicans, broke up more than 30 different monopolies. Standard Oil is the one that everybody knows about. They broke that into 34 different companies. And that's still on the books. In 1965, the Supreme Court, in a case that involved the Buster Brown Shoe Company and the McKinney Shoe Company, they wanted to merge the two. And the Supreme Court barred the merger based on the Sherman Act because the new combined company would control 5% of the shoe market in the United States. In 1983, Reagan instructed the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Securities and Exchange Commission to stop enforcing the Sherman Act. And now you've got, like, Nike controls 20%, 19.5% of the U.S. shoe market. And this has happened in pretty much every industry in America. Every industry is now in the hands of what are essentially monopolies or cartels typically four or five companies that dominate more than 80% of the industry. It's pretty much impossible to find an industry that's not true of. And the result of that is that we've got a new oligarchy. I had Jimmy Carter on my program saying, because of Citizens United and because of this Reagan stopping the enforcement of the Sherman Act, we're no longer a democracy. America's become an oligarchy. I, I think he's absolutely right. I think it's very true. And I'm hopeful that we can learn lessons from our own past and go back and start breaking up these giant combines, these giant behemoths. Tom, maybe it's because I'm a Brit, maybe it's because I'm a student of history, but hasn't America always been an oligarchy? If I look back at the foundation of your nation, it was the planter oligarchy, the ones who were pushing for the break from Britain. Any historical reading of the foundation of the United States best says a third of the settlers were pro-independence, a third didn't care, and a third were loyalists. But it was Correct. a very peculiar type of, a, of American that, that was pushing. Have things ever been different? And then I'll fast forward to now, and I think what you do say, I think, is really quite redolent in terms of the Gilded Age. You look at the Gilded Age, and Teddy Roosevelt had the strength to break up these monopolies, and we now have two American parties, whether it's Democrat or Republican, that are supine in front of the big tech companies, that they seem to have forgotten the power that monopolies can have throughout American industry. So a multi-part statement dressed up as a rough question that, number one, you've always been an oligarchy in your country. And then number two, yes, maybe your book is prescient because the influence that, let's say, Amazon or Facebook 
or Apple have over the American economy is utterly outsized, but you don't have the politicians that have the backbone to deal with it. Yeah. Let's break that down into pieces. There's this mythology that America was started by wealthy planters and plantation owners. And I guess wealth is a relative thing. Jefferson and Washington both essentially died in bankruptcy. The planter class in America at that time at the very most, would have been the upper middle class of British society. There was one family in the Northeast, the Johnson family, who had built a castle on the oh, the river that goes through New York. They had brought European soldiers over. They lived like kings. They were not particularly involved in politics. They were run out of the country in the American Revolution. Most of the revolutionaries, most of the people involved in the American Revolution were what you would call middle class or upper middle class. We really didn't see the emergence of fantastic wealth in the United States until the 1820s, 1830s. And that was largely in the South and in the banking class in the North. And it was a result of the cotton trade and the cotton gin. Since then, I, th I think you could build an argument that we've been through recurring cycles of oligarchy in the United States, but definitely not at the founding. And in fact, DeForest MacDonald did a, wrote an amazing book in 1954, taking on James and Mary Beard, wrote The History of America in 1932. And they put forward this hypothesis that Howard Zinn popularized, that America was of, by, and for rich white men, period, full stop, that the whole constitution, the whole point of it was to maintain the, the primacy of wealth. So he went back and he looked at, on a state-by-state -state basis, who voted for and who voted against the Constitution, and found that in every state, the majority of the people who supported the Constitution were school teachers, people who were indebted, small farmers. None of them were wealthy. Most of them were not even what you would call upper middle class. And the principal opposition to the Constitution came from people like Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was a strong opponent of the Constitution. He was the largest slaveholder in Virginia. He held over 300 people in slavery. And if we had an oligarch, I think you could say Patrick Henry might have been one, although, again, he was wealthy in land and enslaved people, but not so much in actual cash that could be passed down and that kind of thing. There, there literally are no, the real American oligarchs like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the DuPonts, their heirs are still with us and they're still fabulously rich. There's not a single heir of the American Revolution who made it past 30 years after the American Revolution as a dynastic family. Not one. The richest guy who signed the Declaration of Independence, John Hancock, his net worth in today's dollars was about $700,000. No, it wasn't oligarchy. And it wasn't oligarchy that those guys were fighting for. They were very clear that they were fighting against oligarchy. Now, the other parts of your question were, you'll have to remind you me. You know what? D don't worry about those. Maybe I was just flexing and showing off. That I know a little bit about American history. One of the chapters of your book is the secular origin of America. And I want to come to that and ask you why that is important after this clip. In 1973, we had the Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion across the United States. And at that time, if you said to life, you were talking about the anti-death penalty movement, which called itself the right to life movement. And by 77, 78, 79, the anti-abortion movement was rebranding itself as the right to life movement and stealing that from the anti-death penalty people. But the big event was Ronald Reagan being nominated for president in 1980. 
with George Herbert Walker Bush as his vice president. George H.W. Bush then brought his son, George W. Bush, a recovering alcoholic and a born-again Christian, into the campaign as the liaison to the religious right. And these guys created this Christian coalition and basically took over the Republican Party. And there was a debate. We've got to have an issue. Religious people have to have an issue. What can we campaign on? Ultimately, their issue was abortion. And by the way, Reagan had signed as governor of California the most liberal abortion law in America, allowing abortion in California, before Roe v. Wade. And George Herbert Walker Bush had been, I don't believe he was on the board of Planned Parenthood, but he was a big supporter of them. Not so much about abortion, but just Planned Parenthood in general, birth control in particular. So that all changed in 1980 with that election. And by 1981, it was off to the races. And so that's how we got where we are. That Christian coalition, that conservative right, doesn't believe that America was founded with secular principles, does it? No. And in fact, they have their own phony historians who either cherry pick or just plain old make up quotes from the founders to justify their positions, with a few exceptions. Again, Patrick Henry was probably the most well known because he was also an evangelical Christian and an outspoken one in his time. He was most famous for saying, give me liberty or give me death, which is an ironic thing to hear from the largest slaveholder in Virginia. But by and large, most of the people who were involved in writing the Constitution and founding our country and inciting the American Revolution were deists. They, they believed that there was a moment of creation billions of years ago, and, and everything has just run according to natural law ever since. It's why in the, in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson refers to nature's God. And when he wrote that, John Adams, who proofread the Declaration, and Adams was a, a Christian, a fundamentalist Christian, and he scratched that out and put in the Christian God. And then Jefferson scratched that out and put nature's God back in. And that's how it ended up. He thought that, and most of these guys thought that we were following natural law, not revealed law. And they were very skeptical of revealed religions, which Christianity is one, where, where a divine figure comes to the earth and reveals to us the will of God or the gods, as the case may be. And the big debate, by the way, between Jefferson and his protege, Madison, who was the father of the Constitution, who kind of ran the Constitutional Convention and kept all the notes, was that Madison, who was a Christian, believed that the biggest danger to Christianity was government giving churches money. And in fact, when he became president in 1809, his first veto of a piece of legislation was vetoing a law that gave money to a church in Washington, D.C. to feed homeless people. And he said, this should be a function of government. We should never be giving money to the church. Jefferson, on the other hand, was frantic about the possibility that a priest might run for political office and win, thereby religious people corrupting government from the top down. And Madison was concerned about government corrupting religion. Turns out they were both right. Last question from me before I move this on to the people on stage. And if you are in the audience, now is the time to throw your hands up in the air like you do care. And basically, you can ask a question to Tom Hartman. Listen to a lot of your output, Tom, and you do think that Ronald Reagan and the Republican Party, which then comes to power afterwards, is a sizable break with American traditions. So hence, I played that clip. In what other ways do you think that the Republican Party, which kind of looks back at Reagan, is anti-democratic? The old joke is Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line, that 
there's there's a strong kind of authoritarian streak that you find in the Republican Party, and that that is, I think, pretty significant. That's one symptom of it. The modern GOP is basically controlled by fossil fuel billionaires and other billionaires. The Koch network, Charles Koch and his late brother were fossil fuel billionaires. That network has more employees and a larger budget than the GOP. They're like the invisible planet that's distorting the orbits of all the other planets. This is why you can't find a Republican who will acknowledge climate change or that we should do anything about it, because they are so enthralled to the political network and the money that has been provided by these fossil fuel billionaires. There's also the problem of banks and hedge funds and very wealthy individuals. And you mentioned tech earlier. We now have three men who own more wealth than the bottom half of America. That, that's a classic definition of oligarchy. And this is why you see Elon Musk now sucking up to Ron DeSantis and saying that he's essentially going to be a Republican. They get it. The Republican Party is the pro-oligarchy party. The Democratic Party is the pro-democracy party or at least half of the Democratic Party, is the pro-democracy party. Gotcha. Now is the time where we throw things open to people who've been waiting patiently to ask a question. And Marshall Ranking, nobody's been waiting more patiently than you, sir. You were the first person to digitally raise your hand. Marshall, what's your question to Tom Hunt? Well, first off, I just want to thank you for being here, Mr. Hartman. I have not had the opportunity to read your books, but I am a big fan of history. I found in particular about the talk you were just giving the point about the Huron and the Iroquois Confederacy. I knew that influenced our founding. Really what I want to know is what reforms need to be put into our system if you had to say pick five and you could only do three at one time. What are the reforms, number one, you think we need most in terms of reforms number one we need to start enforcing the sherman antitrust act and the clayton act the uh, the 1920s i think it was 1923 that followed it and then the 1956 antitrust act we need to reverse reagan's executive order and start breaking up these companies and providing for competition making it safe for small and medium-sized businesses to exist in america now and number two we need to return to a high uh, tax rate, uh, a top tax bracket, both for personal and corporate income. The, the, that served as a social stabilizer, essentially. From the 1930s until the 1980s, um, it was almost impossible to find a CEO in America who took more than 30 times what their workers make. Because once you started getting more than 30 times the average worker's salary, it was taxed at 90%. Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican president, vigorously defended the 90% top income tax rate for that reason. And what that did is it, it built a huge middle class and brought us a lot of economic vitality. The, the decade of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, we saw growth in those decades of between 5.6 and 3.2%. In the first two decades of the 21st century, we have not cracked 2.3% growth, GDP growth. The middle class got largely wiped out. We, two-thirds of America was in the middle class when Ronald Reagan came into office in 1981. Basically, two-thirds of Americans had the equivalent of a good union job. About a third of Americans had a union job, and the union jobs provided the established the labor and benefits, the pay and benefits floor locally. So the another third of Americans had the equivalent of a union job, and that provided for the American middle class. That uh, And again, that was caused by high tax rates. And the, when Reagan dropped the top tax, income tax rate down to 27%, the immediate effect was that 
there was a huge wealth transfer from average working people. It's been a 51, documented a $51 trillion transfer of wealth from the American middle class in 1981 to the top 1% as of now. $51 trillion gone. We were at 64% of Americans were solidly middle class at the time by most definitions. Now it's a little less than 45%. And to establish the middle class lifestyle that you could do with one single wage earner in 1981 now requires two wage earners. So it's even worse than it looks just on the surface. And the corporate tax, again, corporations generally didn't pay high tax rates, even though we had during the Eisenhower administration a 54% top income tax rate for corporations. But the reason why you want to have that high tax rate is that it encourages corporations to do the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing. I owned a small business in the 1970s. I wrote an article about this on Monday, I believe it was, at hartmanreport.com. And we were starting to make some real money. And my dad was our kind of business advisor. And he said, don't take the money out of the company as pay. You're going to pay a stupid amount of income tax on it. Keep it in the company and, and invest in things that are tax deductible. So the company doesn't have to pay taxes either. And that was R&D and developing a new product line and, and an advertising campaign. We did those things and we grew the company from 10 employees to 18 employees. That was how American business was run. Now you've got corporations that last year, just in two sectors, just in the S&P 500, primarily in two sectors, bought back a trillion dollars worth of their own shares. That contributes not one penny to productivity in the American economy. All it does is artificially inflate stock prices. And so that the senior executives who are principally compensated with stock, like the CEO of one of the big insurance companies, health insurance companies, took $141 million last year. About $135 million of that was from stock options. So they buy back their own shares to reduce the number of shares in the marketplace, which artificially inflates the price of the stock. It doesn't add anything to the value of the company, doesn't develop new products, doesn't help society, doesn't help local communities, doesn't help workers. It's just a way of skimming money off corporations. This was a felony. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt made stock buybacks a felony in 1933 when he created the Securities and Exchange Commission and put Joe Kennedy in charge of it, saying to my old friend Gloria Swanson, takes a crook to, to catch a crook. And so he put Joe Kennedy in charge of it. But it, it was illegal until 1983. Again, Reagan suspended that with an executive order and said, we're going to stop the SEC from banning stock buybacks. And now it's the principal way the corporations are recycling money. And as a result, we're seeing slower economic growth. We're seeing less innovation. And we're certainly seeing the companies no longer have an incentive to give better pay to their employees. I would ban, uh, would ban stock buybacks as part of an anti-monopoly thing. I, yeah, I've uh, got a few others, but I think I'm talking way too long. Here. 100%. And, and in this way, America is not exceptional in that Britain and to a lesser degree, Canada, etc., have gone through the same process because of... Oh, yeah. Thatcherism and Absolutely. That's my last book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism. And what is amazing is that whilst the middle class has shrunk, the American definition of the middle class, and we just say the working class has become poorer, they don't seem to have too many champions. And we don't have the kind of polarized, knee-jerk reaction to the word socialism in Britain, democratic socialism in the way that you guys do. But still, we have a political party, the Labour Party, which is supposed to be pro the worker and a more equitable way of doing things, which still doesn't really rail against neoliberalism in, in the way that it should. It's possibly a conversation for another time, but by any metrics, a young person in 2023, whether it's in Britain, Canada, the United States, is materially poorer than they would have been 
50 years ago. They have less economic options. They can't afford to buy their own homes, et cetera, et cetera. But we have a political class. And the very wealthy are massively more wealthy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go to Frank, Moran, and Breyer. Frank are from Berlin, Germany. You're up next. Yeah. Good evening. Good local time. I'm somewhat curious about your take on how machine learning at the at this day and age, which is considered to be AI or not, how that intersects with your oligarchy analysis, and especially with the energy sector, and then what you think about the selective migration options for top scientists and experts, that how those can get into the United States and while others can't. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of pieces there. I, my sense of things is that AI is the next iteration, the next technological leap that follows HTML and the development of the internet, social media, and all the way back to in the 1960s. When I was a kid, I remember when the transistor came out and I, I got some CK722 transistors and built little transistor radios myself. Each one of these technical changes, the, the IBM rolling out the PC, Apple and all those things. I think each one of those have substantially changed the world and changed our experience of the world. And I suspect AI is going to do the same thing. How it's going to work, because it is emerging in a context, in a political and economic framework that is largely oligarchic right now, I see one of the big dangers as being that it will simply amplify oligarchy, that companies that control the largest and fastest computers or that buy up all of their small competitors in the AI field are going to end up dominating it, much like Facebook did, where Mark Zuckerberg just, you know, every time there was a serious competitor, he just bought them and either killed the company or just kept it as a brand, like with Instagram. That should not be legal. And, you know, it should not be happening uh, here or anywhere else. Europe is more aggressive in enforcing antitrust, but they've come to it kind of late also. So... Beyond that, I don't have any profound thoughts on AI. There's other thinkers who spend a lot of time with that. So I'll leave it at that. I would love to do a room and maybe have you back on again sometime soon, Tom, to really dig in into AI. We can all look at the fact that how this is going to change the workplace. But I think this is going to have profound implications for democracy, for for government, all throughout the world, whether it is how governments go through the change from the work environment that we have now through to one where maybe just a handful of companies globally will have the the power to write this code. Because if technological change has told us anything, it actually amplifies monopoly. And, yeah. and you and absolutely do need governments then to regulate and you americans seem to be on the opposite side of when it comes to regulating a monopoly tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts good news ad free listening is available on amazon music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your prime membership stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the amazon music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. I, I totally agree. And that, that's why I was saying we need to we need to be enforcing antitrust legislation, the antitrust laws that we have. And we need to be applying them to this. I think we also need to be applying them to social media, but that's a whole other rant. Yeah. But yeah. Could not agree more. Thank you for that question, Frank. Right. Now, Moran, you're always a very erudite person on the stage. You're up next. Hi. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. I have been raising this tax bracket issue. A lot of people in the clubhouse who are listening right now have heard me talk about it. I'm glad you raised the issue. So I'm going to add another angle to it. In fact, I think, you know, everyone uh, give credit to Ronald Reagan for winning the Cold War. And I think he was just a chancy gardener being there at the right time, at the right place, picking up a fruit that was falling from the tree anyway. I think the true reason Reagan is the darling of the right is because he took the tax bracket from 70% to 27%. And that's why they really like him and glorify him not because of the Cold War, even everyone knows what the real reason is. Now, I want to say that adding to what you just said, Reagan added first $10 trillion to the, de- to the debt that we have. He started the debt, and I give all the credit to actually Herbert Walker Bush, the father for international audience. He was the one who raised the taxes back to 31%, knowing that he would lose the election, but he was the patriot that he did the right thing. And I'm glad you brought it up. And I was wondering if you have any comments on the Cold War and Reagan's role in it. Yeah, I, the Soviet Union was just horribly dysfunctional. I lived in Germany in 1988, 87 and 88. And I, I lived right on the East German border and spent some time in East Germany. And I also visited Moscow. And it was so obvious that this was a society that was collapsing. So I completely agree with your analysis that Reagan was in the right place in the right time. And really, the Soviet Union didn't collapse during Reagan's presidency. It collapsed during George Herbert Walker Bush's presidency. If you really want to be passing out bonus points, they should be going to him. In 91, it was really the big year. Reagan left office in 88, or 80, January of 89. So, yeah, I don't disagree. Thank you for that, Moran. Brian B., welcome to the stage, sir. What's your question? Good to see you again, Rockfield, and thanks so much, Tom, for the interview and the information. I had three extremely quick ones. The first was you mentioned that Reagan kind of makes this right. private. Ask one quick one. Let's get, then we'll go to Red. If you have the time, then we'll do the other two. You got it. You got it. No, I know you're managing the time. So my question, let's go with the most, I think, interesting one. You talked about the role of economics mostly when it comes to politics on changing corporate tax rates and other structures. I'm curious if there were to be a democratic reform, obviously, 
a lot of these economic reforms will have some sort of democratic political effects in a big sense. If you were to make a strictly political reform, do you think that there's something that could be done to address some of these issues that you see in contemporary America? Because obviously it's chicken and egg without economic reform. It's very difficult to realistically make political reform and vice versa. Yeah. Thanks so much for your thoughts. I really appreciate them. Yeah. Thank you. The turning point for America in this context of this pairing of these issues was in 1976. In 1976, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Buckley versus Bilotti that if a wealthy person wanted to give money to a politician or throw money into a political campaign, that the limits that had been under law for years and years, the oh, I'm forgetting the name of the act, but in 19, oh, the Tillman Act, it was passed in 1907, which made it a federal crime for any corporation to give money to any policy, any candidate for political office for fed at the federal level there were there were laws like this in every single state that that capped campaign financial contributions and things like that and the supreme court in 76 in buckley said it's not really money it's speech money is the same thing as speech and speech is protected by the first amendment so if rich people want to pour money down the throats of politicians they have the right to do that that was followed two years later by a case called First National Bank versus Frank Bellotti, the attorney general of the state of Massachusetts. And in that case, the Supreme Court said, we're going to apply the same logic to corporations. Corporations are persons. They have rights under the First Amendment as for a free speech. Money is no longer money. It's now speech. And so corporations can pour money into political campaigns. Based on those two Supreme Court decisions in 76 and 78, the GOP basically did a merger with big oil big and big banking in 79 and 80. And most of the money that floated Reagan into political office in 1980 came out of the oil industry, which is one of the, which felt under siege at the time, because two years earlier, Jimmy Carter had essentially declared war on them, saying that he was creating the nation's first solar bank, that by the year 2000, 20% of our power would be coming from renewable sources, putting solar panels on the roof of the White House, banning the export of oils. Actually, Nixon had banned the export of oil, but Carter was really cracking down on that. There had been a, a lot of essentially smuggling. That was the beginning of the end, at least for the GOP. And then the Democratic Party in 92 made that same turn because by that point in time, the union structures, the unions were the major funders of the Democratic Party, whereas corporations had been the major funders of the Republican Party. And in 92, when Clinton was running for president, the unions didn't have enough money to fund a presidential campaign anymore. And so he cut deals with the what he called the clean industries, with the banking and insurance and whatnot, and left the, quote, dirty industries to the GOP, oil and chemical and, and whatnot. And that, that dynamic still, to a large extent, exists. Citizens United tripled down on, in 2010 on both of those doctrines. And in fact, it was Lewis Powell himself who wrote the Bellotti decision in 78, the guy who wrote the Powell memo saying that rich people need to basically rise up and take over America and make it safe for oligarchy again. The solution, in my mind, is to reverse those twisted doctrines and to say money is not speech. Money is political power. And the average voter should have as much political power as the average billionaire, at least in terms of the ability to help somebody get elected. And whether it's direct money contributions or whether it's contributions in kind, like giving them time on your television network or whatever, it needs to be considered contributions and it needs to be regulated. And that involves reversing these three major Supreme Court decisions that have completely distorted American politics in the 20th, late 20th and early 21st century. Thank you for that great question, Brian B, and thought-provoking answer. 
from you, Tom. Last person to ask a question is someone new to our stage. It's Rev X. Rev X, the spotlight is on you. Make sure that your question is not only pertinent and on the money, but also bloody excellent. Go for it, Rev. Okay, I'll do my best. Hi, Tom. I'm a big fan. I watch your show all the time. I just have a question about your opinion about something. This is a, a quote from Abraham Lincoln. Supposedly, it's been disputed whether or not it's real. America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we lose our freedoms, it will be because we have destroyed ourselves from within. And whether or not it's true, you've heard of it. Yeah. I wanted to know what you think about that. I happen to think that it's spot on and it's it was very, very prescient coming from a man of that time. And of course, this is, I believe, after the Civil War that this quote was attributed to around that time frame. And I think it's still relevant today because the same challenges, the racial challenges that were existed then pretty much are still with us. And I think it lends credence to whether or not to to that statement, whether it's true or not. Yeah, that, that was my question to you. Yeah, it's a great one. It's a great one. Thank you. I agree with the sentiment. And I think that this is the big challenge we're facing. We've got politicians and a large part of a political party that are using hate and fear as a political weapon, racialized hate, homophobic hate, misogynistic hate, or fear. That's always corrosive. And that's that and that is intrinsic to the, the core no, nature, nature of fascism, sadly. And then you've also got this internal oligarchy that we've talked about a couple of times here in this hour of great wealth, both corporate wealth and individual wealth now coming to dominate American politics. And I, the corrosion, the cancer within American society is basically those two things, is this white Christian nationalist movement that basically only accepts white male power, white straight white male power structures within our society, a Christian straight white male power structures, and an oligarchic network, a system that that uses that and exploits that to, to aggrandize their own wealth and political power. These are, I think these are the two greatest dangers, although you can't ignore the danger of climate change. But the climate change is right now, the crisis around climate change in the United States is being driven largely by the fact that we've got an entire political party that is beholden to the fossil fuel industry. I guess my answer, my question was, do you think it's true? Yeah, I absolutely do. <laughs> I absolutely yeah, do. Like, I, I think we're, our enemies we're seeing it in real attention. time. Yeah, we're seeing it in real yeah. time right now. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you, X. And it was a nice meeting you on the platform. There you go. Another Mid-Atlantic with acclaimed American radio personality and author Tom Hartman. Tom, the book is The Hidden History of American Democracy. At least that's the short title. Tell us the long title and tell us where people can get your book. I'd, the long title, the subtitle is Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living. And the book is available anywhere you can buy books. It's, it's <laughs> national history. You know what? That's this really silly thing. We'll say to me, where can you get your books? People know. Mm. Get it from Amazon. And we talked about oligarchy yeah. and monopolies. You know what? Wherever you get this man's book, do not get it from Amazon. Go and support your local bookstore because you'll be helping democracy and economic equilibrium by not going to Amazon. A great service as that is, but it massively distorts the marketplace for authors and for creators of many other products. So don't go to Amazon when you go get the book. T- tell us about the radio show, the YouTube channel, and where people can find you, maybe on air, sir. We, we have uh, two websites for the radio TV show, which are tom.tv, T-H-O-M.tv, 
where we send out a, a daily email in the morning that lists all the topics I'm going to be talking about and who the guests will be and all that kind of stuff. When we have guests, very often we just don't have guests. And, and then we send out a second email late in the afternoon that Sue Nethercutt puts together that lists, that has hot links for every single topic that was discussed on the show, including things from callers. And that's completely free. And that's over at tom.tv. And that uh, tomhartman.com is the main website. If you want to find radio stations and that kind of thing, that's in, in all of my old writings and stuff like that, that's there. And then my daily writing, which is what I'm going to get back to when we get off the line here, Every day I write a, an op-ed at hartmanreport.com, and that those are free five days a week. And so I encourage people to check those out too. Thank you for asking. Listen, no worries. And it'd be remiss of me not to say what I'm about to say now. Tom, if you're ever in need of a guest, I'll turn up to anything, right? So if you've exhausted <laughs> the list of really eminent, prominent, erudite speakers and you're scrambling around, send me a text message or an email. I'll turn up and I'll do my best. And there you go, folks. That's been us here at Mid-Atlantic. Before you go, can I ask Tom if he would ever run for political office? No, I won't. (laughs) I'm not wired for it. I'm a pretty good talk show host and a decent writer. I'd make a lousy politician. But thank you for asking. So I haven't put out a lot of Mid-Atlantics recently. I'm back in the UK and basically been doing a lot of work for a client recently. But I'm going to get back on the horse, so to speak. So do expect more Mid-Atlantics in the next couple of weeks. And I will be experimenting with drumroll YouTube. It's about time. Eagle, the eagle-eyed among you will know that we have actually put some of these episodes up on YouTube before. We're going to try that again, but maybe break them down into small, smaller bits and pieces. Look for us on YouTube. And to those people who've written us reviews, positive reviews, thank you. That is the most effective way for us to get new listeners to the podcast. Mid-Atlantic is all about civil discourse between us who believe that left of center politics is right-thinking politics. And with our p- political adversaries, but we don't demonize our right-wing brothers and sisters. We try and win them over the strength of our argument, but also looking at the economic damage that neoliberalism has done on both sides of the the Atlantic. We've had 40 years of this experiment, and the experiment has most definitely failed, whether it is looking at the level of homelessness in the United States or the relative wealth inequality, which is getting worse and worse in the UK. Neoliberalism has to go. We need a more people-centered politics. That's what we we believe here at Mid-Atlantic. But there's a way of going about political debate and discourse and we believe that at the heart of every society is the commons, the common space where we can talk civilly, passionately, and with an informed righteousness about our case without resorting to vitriol and violence, as trying as that is at times. That that runs to the DNA of Mid-Atlantic. If you want to send me an email, you want to slag me off, you want to tell me I'm a washy social democrat or whatever, you can send me an email at royhood at gmail.com. But thank you for lending me your ears on this episode of Mid-Atlantic. Tom Hartman, thank you for coming with us. You, sir, is some liberal pundit of royalty, and we thank you for coming on to the show. Uh, Take care, everyone. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Mel, Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Daddy! Hey, Mikey, if you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl. But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get you that budget. Just as soon as... What? Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart, Brian.